Hey there, and welcome to the pod for Tuesday, December the 15th. Coming up, more on the emerging debate over that second dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Also, we talk about what is in the vaccine and should you be concerned about a possible allergic reaction and paying back your CERB. What's with these education letters that have been sent out by the Canada Revenue Agency? All of that ahead on the pod right now. Joined now by vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is on the line, and she joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, I want to start with Moderna. The federal government has apparently reached a deal for delivery of their vaccine within 48 hours of approval. Just when are we expecting that from Health Canada, and how good of a piece of news is this? This is amazing news. Consider that the efficacy of this vaccine is 94%. For previous vaccines, when we've seen efficacies that high, we're talking about taking a common disease and potentially turning it into a rare one over time with enough people vaccinated, that is. So it's, it's super exciting. Can we get it out to enough Canadians quickly enough? That's the question. The exciting thing about the Moderna vaccine is that finally we can reach the north with this because it has to be stored at minus 20 instead of minus 70 degrees like the Pfizer vaccine. So we can get it to remote communities, to indigenous communities that are especially at high risk. So it's exciting. All right, let's uh, shift focus and talk a little bit about the Pfizer vaccine, which is here as of yesterday, as you well know, and we all watched uh, the first vaccinations took place in Ontario and across the country. And there's a debate going on right now, Dr. Gorfinkel, about the best way to distribute the vaccine. Here in Ontario, we are holding back those uh, second doses, uh, and they've been scheduled for 21 days from uh, yesterday. Meanwhile, in B.C., they're giving out all of their vaccine right now, and that second dose won't come, uh, obviously, until another shipment of the Pfizer vaccine uh, arrives here in Canada. Is there a better route? Do you favor one over the other when it comes to uh, distributing the vaccine? Both have their risks. On the one hand, if we give the vaccination out immediately, we have the advantage of having vaccinated far more people, right? Because if two could be become one. So the Pfizer vaccine needs two vaccines 21 days apart. That's important for people to understand. So in theory, we could take the two shots and give one shot to, more, to twice the number of people. But then will we have the vaccine on time to make sure that second dose is given 21 days later as it's supposed to be? There is a cost. Because that we know if we don't give it on time, immunity may fall. Even if we give just one shot, we'll have 52% immunity after about seven days. But when that second shot is given, you raise that to 95% immunity. So all the, like the study, the research that we have on the 44,000 people that Pfizer has given us so far, what we know is that it's 95% effective when two doses are given. It's 52% effective with one dose. So should we spread it out? My guess is we probably should do exactly what the research has shown is effective. That's what we should aim for. All right. Meantime, the U.K. is reporting a new strain of COVID. This has got a lot of people uh, concerned. Just uh, how concerned should we be about this, about this new strain of COVID? about it is that, first of all, it's important to understand the vaccine itself has no virus whatsoever. What the two vaccines have, both the Moderna product and the Pfizer product, 
are instruction packets on how to make a protein on the coat of the virus. So the concern about this new strain is that, that protein is slightly different. They discovered a slightly different protein in southeast England. But we, so what? So the protein is slightly different. Most likely the vaccines will work against them just as well as the older protein. This is not a major change. It is a minor change that they've discovered. What happened in Denmark, remember when they killed all those minks? 17 million minks met their maker. And that was a major change in the virus. That's why they killed all those minks. They were really worried because that was a new, yet another novel coronavirus. This one in Southeast England is just a minor change and probably, most likely, the vaccine would work against it anyway. Okay, and from what I understand and what I have read is that this is not unexpected, that uh, when we see a virus like uh, COVID, you will eventually see different strains of it? Oh, you're totally nailing it, Jeff. That's absolutely right. And what this is the nature of anything that replicates quickly and fast over a large population. And we're not even going to notice and see most of those changes. Because, you know, consider that spike protein. That's the protein that sits on the coat of the virus. And that's where most of the vaccines are aimed at, at that protein. The vaccines do not contain virus. They contain instruction manuals on how to make that single protein. That's what it is. So, Consider that if it changes very slightly, the vaccines almost certainly are going to work against them anyway. It's the major changes we worry about. What if the protein completely changes? And that could happen, and that did happen in Denmark. That's why they got rid of those minks. All right, switching gears from vaccine to case count. The case count here in the province is near 2,300 today. The health minister, Dr. Gorfinko, was asked about that moments ago in the press conference from the Ontario government, and she said without measures, the case count would likely be closer to 6,500. But, you know, 2,300 is still fairly alarming. We're over 2,000 for the first time during the pandemic here in the province. So is the lockdown, is, is it failing? Is it not working? Well, you know, there's no such thing as perfection in any one of the things we do. The question is, can we keep the case count low enough that it doesn't overwhelm our hospital systems? And I'll share with you right now, in Trillium, they're transferring the patients out right now. This is Mississauga. So we've got one of our major hospital systems, and their ICU is chock full. So this is, it doesn't take a lot of cases to really overwhelm our hospital systems. And don't forget, it's not just a question of the sickest people. It's a question of when those, when those ICU beds are taken up, that stops regular surgery. That stops your knee replacement. That stops all the elective stuff because they have to have on weight a potential bed. So should something go wrong, they, they have to have that in the background. So what winds up happening is that it's not just a question of ICU. It's a question of hospital beds and hospital resources. And you know what? It comes right down to me as a family doctor. Because what do you think happens to all those cases, the ones that don't wind up in the hospital? They wind up at the family doctor's doorstep. And what does that do to primary care? That overwhelms primary care services. So it, it all comes around. We should all, all look at this as this is everyone's problem. Okay, so taking all that into account, and I'm just dear on time here, but I wanted to ask you, knowing all of that, what you just said, 
We're looking at uh, Hamilton and Lime Ridge Mall is in the news here this afternoon. They've extended their hours, Dr. Gorfinkel, and they're actually encouraging people from lockdown areas and zones to come shop there. Just how worrisome, how concerning should that be? That's extremely concerning. I mean, we know that spread happens not just by big droplets, but potentially by aerosols as well. Aerosols are micro droplets that hang in the air kind of like cigarette smoke does. Do we need to be concerned? Absolutely. We cannot be congregating with huge numbers of people in enclosed spaces that have shared air. It's not just a question of the mask will protect me enough. We cannot rely on that. We look at the super spreader events and we see that actually events like that can be major problems. All right. Some uh, sobering words, as always, from Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Dr. Gorfinkel, thanks. Really appreciate it. Many thanks, Jeff. All right. Stay well. And we've got some financial news to discuss on this Tuesday afternoon. And it's a good thing we've got our financial expert, Rabina Ahmed-Hawk, on the line. She joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Rabina, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Let's start with the CERB, because there is word that the CRA, boy, that's a lot of initials and acronyms, uh, the Canadian (laughs) Revenue Agency, uh, Rabina, they have sent, quote-unquote, education letters to certain recipients. What do we know about this? Yeah, I know these warning letters, I think, which is more correct uh, to call them that, has been sent to more than 441,000 Canadians, uh, basically saying, hey, you didn't meet the requirements for CERB, but you applied anyways. So one of the main requirements to get CERB is that you made $5,000 in 2019. And so many people who applied may not have met that threshold. And this comes just weeks after they had already sent letters to other Canadians who got double payments because they applied through both the CRA portal and the Service Canada portal. So there's a lot of Canadians uh, right now during the holidays getting these letters and emails and warnings telling them you've got to pay this back because you actually didn't qualify for it. And what are we hearing from recipients? What are we hearing from the government here? Because if you apply for a government uh, program and they grant you uh, access, uh, it's pretty tough to get a letter in the mail months later that says, oops, are bad. Yeah, so if you did receive CERB payments and you weren't supposed to receive them, my best advice, if you have that money, is to pay it back before December 31st. Because if you don't, what they're saying is if you pay it back before December 31st, it's like no harm, no foul. If you pay it back after December 31st, you're going to get a T4. So you will have to have that claimed on your taxes and then adjusted accordingly and still have to pay the money back. So it's just going to be that much more of a complicated process for you in the end the CRA wants that money back. I think they were very clear on uh, who could apply and uh, the reasons for why you could apply. Even, you know, anecdotally speaking for myself, I got a ton of calls where I could see through the messaging that the person on the other line was telling me. I'm not an advisor, but I do have tons of friends that come to me for financial advice. I I could hear, I I kept questioning. I'm like, I don't think you apply for CERB. I don't think you qualify for CERB or I think you need to come off CERB and start working again because your job's calling you back. So a lot of that has happened across Canada. I'm not saying that 
people who received these double payments or these payments without qualifying did it uh, uh, under malice. What I am saying is that now the CRA, because they have all the receipts, are able to look through them and say who could have, who should have gotten that money and who, sh- who should not have. Yeah, just finally on this, Rabina, is there any recourse at all for those that get these uh, letters other than just to pay back that money? I mean, can they appeal and say, hey, listen, I, I uh, require this money because of A, B, and C, and I feel as if I qualify for C, E, R, B because of this? I don't think that you can uh, qualify for CERB outside of those requirements. So if you didn't make that $5,000 in 2019, or you happen to make more than $1,000 income in the in the four weeks that you you claim that CERB, you will have to pay it back. Now, if a mistake has been made, then you can go to the CRA and say, this is the mistake that's been made. I think for some self-employed people, you may be able to go back and say, this was the total revenue that I had, but this was my income after uh, expenses. So there there may be some case for some people to go back to CRA, but generally speaking, I mean, the rules are pretty clear. If you don't fall within them, you, you have to pay it back. All right. Meanwhile, breaking this afternoon, and you and I, we've spoken about this a couple of times throughout the pandemic, but we are getting word that millions of Canadians working from home could now qualify for a new tax deduction. The rules, Rabina, apparently have been somewhat simplified when it comes to those who have been working from home and are looking for tax relief. And I want to start with uh, those who are eligible, because uh, the CRA is now saying that uh, you have to spend more than half your time working from home for four consecutive weeks. Yeah, so they've, you know, they've already announced that they're going to allow um, uh, work from home employees. So those people who normally worked in an office and then obviously because the pandemic was declared were sent to work from home uh, to claim up to $400 in expenses without showing any receipts. Now, as a self-employed person, if I buy a computer or if I buy a printer, I use that as an office expense, but the CRA can ask me for a receipt to show that I actually did buy it. In this case, they're not asking you for receipts. There's an understanding that there are certain things that have happened and that have cost workers money that they, you know, they're going to get this break for. Now they're simplifying it, saying that eligible employees who opt for this simplified deduction can claim up to $2 for each day they worked from home up to a maximum $400. So there may be some people that, you know, still went into the office once in a while, still did work from home. So this is helping people understand how much they can actually claim. And again, I know we've uh, discussed this uh, previously, but uh, two bucks a day capped at $400 for the amount of time you spend working at home doesn't seem to kind of, uh, I don't know, add up, I think, for a lot of people if they've spent the majority, if not all of their time working from home during the pandemic. Well, even according to StatsCan, uh, you know, it shows that 2.4 million Canadians uh, who don't normally work uh, in the home office were working from home in October. So, you know, eight months after the pandemic was declared, you can assume with some certainty that those people are still working from home. They have not been called back. They have not been uh, given an office that, that, that is deemed safe for them to go back to. And so, yes, you know, it does seem laughable that even if you take that $400 over eight, nine months, I mean, it's like 50 bucks a month, uh, that's not a lot of money. I mean, if you've spent money setting up, uh, you know, a studio so that you can, you know, have good Zoom, uh, look look great on your Zoom calls, not aesthetically, but, you know, look bright and professional, all those kind of things that require you, uh, you know, to, to, to look presentable in front of your colleagues, or if you've had to buy a new printer or computer, I mean, it's way more than 400 bucks for sure. Yeah, $2 a day, that's a... One of these right here, a cup of coffee is all I'm getting. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> the one thing great is that it's going to take some pressure off companies because normally you got to get a T2200 to claim those expenses. Now you don't have to do that. So that's going to that's going to take some pressure off companies that might be feeling like I don't want to have to go through, you know, 2.5 million people's uh, T2200s to make sure they get this uh, expense claimed. You bet. Rubina, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. There's our financial expert, Rubina Ahmed Hawk, with us this afternoon. Okay, there is so much to digest when it comes to COVID and the COVID vaccine or vaccines. As a matter of fact, we're hearing here this afternoon the Moderna vaccine very close to being approved by Health Canada and the Prime Minister uh, promising that uh, we'll see Moderna's vaccine here on our shores within 48 hours of approval. But a lot of people have got a lot of questions. Uh, How much vaccine do we have? How much more is on the way? And some are wondering if they should even take the vaccine after Health Canada's warning to those with quote-unquote serious allergies. For more on that, we're joined now by Dr. Susan Wasserman. She's with McMaster University in Hamilton and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Wasserman, good afternoon. I appreciate you coming on. Good afternoon. First off, uh, what are in these vaccines that uh, people, some people should be uh, concerned about or concerned with? Look, as best as we can determine, every vaccine has a lot of ingredients. The only one that has come to my attention as an allergist, which may be important, is something called polyethylene glycol. That's the only ingredient to which serious allergy has been described in the past. The rest are a bit of a chemical soup. Uh, and probably won't be recognized as important allergens by either patients or their physicians. All right. That one uh, allergen that uh, you were uh, concerned about or concerned with, uh, what are some of the possible symptoms or repercussions uh, for somebody uh, ingesting that or getting that in their body? Okay. For the most part, what you take in orally when it contains this polyethylene glycol, and I should say that it's present in many things from laxatives to cosmetics to suit and foodstuffs, it's not a problem for the vast majority of people, even though allergy has been described to some other vaccines which do contain this ingredient and also in certain other preparations that one may use for things such as, you know, such as barium enema uh, or colonoscopy. But at the end of the day, you know, if you are having an allergic reaction, and I just want to stress that this is rare for the majority of people, the types of things that you may uh, experience are things like hives, itching, difficulty breathing, swelling, uh, and those sorts of symptoms, and in its most extreme forms, a drop in blood pressure. All right, so those are the uh, symptoms or the possible repercussions, and you've gone over the list of ingredients, if you will, uh, from the uh, vaccine. When Health Canada says uh, that they've issued a warning to those with quote-unquote serious allergies, do you know what they mean by that exactly, doctor? And is there any way that uh, a person can look at their own health history and decide whether or not they are potentially uh, at risk? Yeah. You know what, look, I think that because this is a mass vaccination program and so many people are being immunized and there have been these two cases of anaphylaxis, in people with allergy, what they've done is sort of made a sweeping statement just to put people on alert. At the end of the day, what I'm telling my patients is that the vast majority of allergic people, this is people with food allergy, with medication allergy, with asthma, with 
any sort of allergy can safely receive this vaccine. The ones who I may have caution about will be the ones with this, you know, polyethylene glycol ingredient. That's going to be extremely rare. And perhaps people who have had serious vaccine-related adverse events. Again, not very common, but if those sorts of people say to me, look, I've had trouble with vaccines in the past. I'd like you to give it to me under supervision. I'm quite happy to do so. But the rest, all of them are being advised by me and the professional societies as well to get vaccinated. This is a safe and effective vaccine. And if you do have any thoughts, don't shy away from reaching your doctor and your allergist. Is that your best advice for somebody who might be concerned about a potential allergy when it comes to the general uh, vaccination, which is going to happen, uh, we believe, in April, so you know, four or four and a half months uh, from now? Is that your best advice? If you are concerned, consult your local physician or your current Absolutely. doctor. Absolutely. That would be the first thing that I recommend to people, but the vast majority of people should not have a concern. There's no reason to think that the majority of people will have an allergic reaction except those who have an identified allergy to this ingredient. Uh, The other allergies don't appear to be an issue uh, for the people who have been immunized up to date that we do know about. So healthcare professional, definitely. All right, Dr. Wasserman, uh, what is your take uh, when it comes to how quickly this uh, vaccine has been uh, developed and now administered? I mean, I used the word yesterday, humbling. It really was humbling to watch the first vaccinations happen just some nine, ten months after the pandemic really took hold uh, here in Canada yeah. and across North America. Uh, General Rick Hillier, who, of course, is heading Ontario's vaccination task force, he said he was very emotional watching that yesterday yeah. in a press conference earlier this afternoon. For those that have concerns about how quickly this has been developed, what would you say to them? You know what, look, um, there's no question that it came on, you know, quickly. To me, this is like short of a miracle, frankly, since the inception of this pandemic and how quickly, you know, things came about to the point of vaccination. But people should understand that, you know, safety standards were in place. These were clinical trials that were undertaken. Safety is of paramount importance along with efficacy of these vaccines. So all of these recipients, and they're now in the thousands, have been closely watched. So, you know, I mean, in terms of adverse events with vaccines, you know, many people will get, uh, you know, headache, myalgia, flu-like illness. All of these things are common with most vaccines. But, you know, the the rapidity shouldn't make people think that corners have been cut. I think that there's, you know, been scrutiny by the agencies who oversee this, like Health Canada and the FDA. So at this point, the fact that it came upon quickly, I think, is a good thing. We needed it. And people, you know, obviously we're always vigilant, but it shouldn't keep people from getting vaccinated. I think that the safety standards have been put in place. And it's not to mean that things may not emerge in the future. That's the way this business works as we vaccinate more and more. Uh, But at this point in time, you know, the advice I'm giving, I plan to take myself when the uh, vaccine becomes available. And so that was going to be my final question. What we saw in the UK last week were the first vaccinations there, and I think it was a couple of healthcare workers who had a bit of an adverse or an allergic uh, reaction. That is something that's not uncommon or unexpected when it comes to a vaccine. 
No. And, you know, the fact that we're vaccinating so many people, you know, at one time, adverse events do come out. There are people who, you know, may have an allergy to something. Often this goes unexplained. So people do have adverse reactions. These people both recovered in the UK. And what we do know about these two individuals is, number one, they were both allergic. Number two, we know very little information otherwise. What were their specific allergies? What was the quality of their reaction? So all of these things, I think, remain to sort of be uh, scrutinized over the next few months, who's experiencing reactions and what sorts of individuals, but not common, and both of them ultimately did well. All right, some important information, some important details from Dr. Susan Wasserman with us this afternoon. Dr. Wasserman, thanks again. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Uh, Dr. Wasserman is with McMaster University in Hamilton.